Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Okay, so we have a special edition of the Second in Command podcast. I had um, a couple of people actually come to me over the last six months and ask me if I would do an episode. And they said, you know, you're uh, recording all these great seconds in command everywhere, but you've been a COO a few times yourself. We'd love to hear from you. So I thought what I would do is a bit of an ask me anything. So I went out on Facebook and LinkedIn this week and asked some question, basically one question. If you wanted to ask me a question about um, leadership or being a second in command, what would you ask me? And I'm just going to go ahead and give a Q&A, do a live Q&A, and I'll try to um, give everyone's name on these as well. So first question we have is from Ian Wyatt, who's the president and publisher of Wyatt Investment Research. He said, many smaller businesses below 10 million in revenues get along without a COO. What are the signs that a company needs a COO? And if you were consulting with an entrepreneur, how would you know when to recommend that they get their first hire? So I think it's a great question. Um, first off, what I've always said is if you don't have an assistant, you are one. That's a quote that I learned from a friend of mine, Jack Daly, about 20 years ago. And I've often said that, that if you don't have an assistant, you are one. So the first thing I would do is go out and hire an executive assistant. And then secondly, look to hire a second in command. Also be very careful with the title you put in place for a second in command. It could be a director of operations, a general manager, a VP of operations, and then a COO. So be careful with the title getting too big. The title should really match the roles and responsibilities and the compensation that you want to pay. So where I get to is once you have an executive assistant, you've offloaded all the administrivia off of your role, and you're still left working on a lot of big projects that are high impact projects that, that require a bunch of expertise and are draining you and preventing you from spending a ton of time in your unique ability, that's when you want to hire that second in command. So I think it typically comes in the 30 to 50 employee range. And then for sure, when you hit the employee, 100 employee range, by that point, you just have more opportunities. So it's not so much of a... Um, and need to. It's a when you can. It's an opportunity that I think you go to. Uh, the next question we have is from Ross Thornley, who's an entrepreneur at Adaptability Quotient out of the UK. Uh, Ross and I met at an event that we both go to called Abundance 360 earlier this year. Ross's question is, how would you value and identify adaptability in teams? How might you advise people to recognize what to stop doing and what to do more of in an exponential world? And then when to let go and when to lean in? Uh, great question. Ross is actually building a personality profiling model um, that he'll be bringing online. I actually would would look to to um, some personality profiles for my teams and start building what we call an, a unique ability team, getting people to work on the areas that they're really, really strong in and getting rid of the areas that they suck at or drain them of energy. I think often in the school system, we were told to work on our weaknesses what I love to do is delegate everything except genius and have people working on those areas that they're really strong in and that give them more energy because the more that they work in that, they're going to get better at it. They'll spend more time learning about it. Their energy will, will kind of spin off into the organization as well. So that's what I try to do is adapt in terms of getting rid of the projects and, and initiatives that drain somebody and putting those onto the plates of somebody else that really loves them. <clears throat> example for that is I'm pretty bad at written communication. I'm much better thinking out loud, doing speaking events or coaching. And I find that when I write things, I'm often fairly acerbic. I come off too abrupt. Um, I don't really clearly 
so I write everything in bullet points and um, I'm just a bad writer when it comes to sending out longer forms of messaging. So what I'll often do is take my rough points and give them to a writer who can polish them and make them pop off the page. And they love taking the work and writing it. They're great at writing. It gives them energy. Whereas for me, writing actually drains me. So that's what I try to do in adaptability is getting people to work on their unique abilities. See, the next question we have is from Anthony Perry, who's the VP at National uh, Media Sales. Um, how do you create a culture where it's okay to admit feeling like you have imposter syndrome? Dude, it just is. It's just okay to say that you have imposter syndrome. I think a lot of us, again, are so worried about being judged, but the reality is every day, every one of us wakes up thinking this is the biggest thing we've ever done. In fact, we just had one of our COO Alliance events the other day. We have the only network of its kind in the world for seconding commands. And at the event the other day, one of our COO Alliance members, who was, it was his first event, pulled me aside privately and he said he'd been up all night and he had a really sleepless night and he actually skipped our group morning yoga that morning because he wanted to hang out with his kids and just get a hug from him. And I said, dude, what's wrong? He said, I just feel like a bit of an imposter. I feel like I'm not the right fit in this role. And I was like, whoa, I actually think the exact opposite. I think you're amazing in the role. And I said, let me just ask the group for a second. And we went and asked the entire group first about him and secondly about themselves. And all 30 of our COO Alliance members that were in the room put up their hands saying that they feel like an imposter as well. So I think it's just recognizing that everybody feels like they're making it up as they go. You know, how are we all supposed to have the right answers? But I think the school system has conditioned us to feel like we're supposed to be experts when we're not. So vulnerability is just saying, hey, I'm great in these specific areas, but I need help in others and realizing that everybody is struggling at times too. Um... Let's go Kevin Clancy from Ono Media. Uh, he says, what are the benefits of having a multi-generational workforce? Well, first off, you kind of have to. Um, I mean, you think about you've got Gen Z is 20. Kind of they're, they're the 4 to 22-year-olds. So you've kind of got the 20 to 22-year-olds are coming into the workforce now, um, maybe in summer roles or interns or apprentice or very early stage roles. And then you've got all of Gen Y. Gen X, the oldest Gen X is only 54. And then baby boomers are really 54 to 75. So you've got pretty much four generations in the workforce working for you. Um, it's not so much what are the benefits of it, but how do you leverage each of the strengths that each of those groups bring to you? So I think you know, baby boomers bring a little bit of wisdom. They've been in the workforce for a long time. I was speaking to somebody the other day as we're going through a bit of a financial crisis right now and the coronavirus stuff and somebody was complete freaking out about the stock market going down. I'm like, I guess you were too young to remember 2009, weren't you? He goes, oh yeah, I was too young to remember 2009. And I said, so you don't even know about 2001. You don't know about 1987. He's like, no, not at all. So someone like me who's 54 brings three different stages of financial collapse experience into my day-to-day -day wisdom, my day-to-day -day strategic thinking, my day-to-day -day planning. So as an example, I've been planning for this downturn and got really excited when I saw the collapse because I was able to start deploying a bunch of cash. Cash is king in a recessionary market. But for anybody who's young, early Gen Y, they think, thought it was always going to be great. So I think it's just recognizing that each group brings different strengths. Each group brings different weaknesses, identifying what those strengths are and helping the other groups kind of in, like in that unique ability team idea. The younger stage of Gen Y bring in a lot of the apps and technology tools, but they don't necessarily know how to grow a company or why they're doing what they're doing. You know, Gen X and, and the older Gen Y might have a little bit more of the wisdom, a little bit more tech savvy. And then you have the baby boomers that have a lot more of the wisdom. They were able to um, build teams and teams of teams, and they understood how to get stuff done in a slower environment, but how to be more methodical and get the right things done versus just the spray and pray that we're often doing now because we're moving so quickly. 
So it's just identifying some of those unique ability areas, I think, and trying to leverage those. Let's see. Next question is from Chris Daigle. He helps business owners scale profits. He said, how does the COO step into the limelight? It seems like outside of their home organization, they're unsung heroes, which is a huge missed opportunity to establish authority in the marketplace. Um, well, that's one of the reasons I started the COO Alliance and also started the Second in Command podcast. Right? With the Second in Command podcast, I wanted the rest of the story. When I was the COO for 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I was very forward-facing. I was very outward-facing with the media, doing speaking events. Um, you know, so was Harley, Shop or Harley Finkelstein from Shopify. There's many COOs that play the outward-facing role because the CEO likes to play the inward-facing role. And there's also many COOs who recognize the opportunity to go outward-facing. So I think it's just kind of putting your hand up and saying that you want to do more of those outward-facing, forward-facing roles and just jumping into that. Uh, one definite way is to read the book Free, Free PR and start generating some press about yourself and the company, and that'll help give you a bit of a platform both within your company and outside the business as well. So great question. Uh, Rob Bernstein, <clears throat> who is in leadership development, said, to what extent do you consider, <coughs> excuse me, to what extent do you consider the culture of an organization as opposed to just the numbers? prior to any M&A activity? And if so, how? Wow, I always consider the culture of the organization. In fact, I probably only consider the culture of the organization first. Culture trumps strategy. Um, if you've got a really, really high employee net promoter score, it generally means you've got an engaged workforce. You probably have high revenue per employee, high profit per employee, or at least the opportunity to get that. You've got very engaged people that are excited about growth, excited about culture, probably low turnover that tends to translate into very happy customers. Um, so I, I look for companies that have that. If we're doing M&A opportunity where we're acquiring companies that maybe don't have a strong culture, what I'm looking for are the right culture fit people to keep. And then which ones can I get rid of that are the wrong culture fit so that we can do a quick turnaround. But I think the biggest opportunities are to turn around companies that have a bad culture um, and then to do acquisitions to um, look for companies to bring under the fold that maybe have great cultures. But I think really focusing on employee net promoter score and employee engagement and culture is what's going to drive your revenue and profit numbers in the organization for sure. Next question is from Sarah Stanley, who's an um, employer brand and culture leader. She said, where does empathy and connection with your employees fit into your decision making and that of the leadership team? Does everyone have it? If not, how do you thread it into decision making if it's not everyone's skill set? Great question. Um, one of the things that we did back at 1-800-GOT-JUNK that I think was key was we hired a head of people. And for us, the head of people considered the people impact of every decision and every plan that we were putting in place in the organization. So when we started to think about the people impact of our growth, the people impact of our strategy, the people impact of our marketing tactics, the people impact of what we were saying to customers, et cetera, just thinking about that at the leadership team level um, really gave us some additional insights and some additional reasons to either green light or red light certain projects. We also built a habit of doing a lot of skip level meetings where the, um, the CEO would skip over his direct reports or her direct reports and meet with their next team. I would go and meet over top of my VPs and meet with their next team, et cetera. So skip level meetings were a great way to be empathetic and to be engaged with the employees. We also got rid of all of our offices completely, and I've coached all of my clients to get rid of offices completely, believing that if you have a complete open office environment, you're sitting with your team, you're sitting with your people, you are um, listening to what they're, 
you know, saying and what's going on, you're, you're observing them. So what I would do is just sit at somebody's desk with my laptop for a few days in IT and then I would switch and sit in PR for a couple of days and I'd switch and sit in marketing. And just by sitting in different parts of the business, you get to see what's happening and again, be very empathetic and very engaged with the employees. Let's go to the next question from uh, Joe Shulcraft. And um, a bunch of these, I actually don't have the company names in front of me, but Joe asked a word association game. The first word that comes to mind with these words. So he said with leadership, with leadership, I think it is mentoring. Uh, for me, it's all about growing people. For loyalty, uh, loyalty is net promoter score. Uh, just the higher the net promoter score is, the higher the loyalty is going to be. For empathy, um, my kids. I think it's just thinking about my team like they were my kids, not in a subservient way, but but just in that like I really care about them and I have their feelings at heart. Um, John Candy, first word that comes to mind with John Candy is John Jack Daly. Because uh, he changed his name on Facebook to be John Daly, but I think Jack Daly and John Candy kind of remind me of each other for some funny reason. Marketing, um, marketing, Whew. is a a guy out of Columbus, Ohio, who used to say, "Early to bed, early to rise, work like hell, and advertise." Accountability um, for me, it's it's hiring the right people. <clears throat> it's hiring accountable people. Somebody said the other day they wanted to hire someone who would hold his people accountable. And I said, no, hire accountable people and it's easier. Next question we have from Lori March. Is it ever right to do a scorched earth and start your culture or restart your culture if it's just wrong? And if so, how do you support those who remain after a mass firing? What's one blind spot that founders usually have when it comes to culture? Um, so yes, if you've got a really, really bad culture, you always are firing those cultural cancers. I think of them like cancerous tumors in our body. If you know you've got the wrong people, you get rid of them right away. Um, if you identify a whole bunch of them, you get rid of them right away. I always do cut deep, cut once. So if I'm firing one person, I look across the organization to see if there's others and I get rid of them all on the same day. Um, and I'm always looking to fire the wrong culture fit people and then people that aren't getting the results second. The way that you support those who remain after a mass firing, we had to fire 150 people years ago for a company that I was running back in Seattle. Um, so we had what we called survivor guilt and we just stayed close to the conversation. We got out of our private offices and sat with them. We went for lunch with them. We went for coffees with them. We asked them how they were feeling. And then we identified that over the course of a couple of days and a couple of weeks, that started to change. And at least after two to four weeks, they were really back to normal and maybe they remembered some of their old friends, but they had really gotten through it. So remembering that it's like a death, we're all going to die. Everybody knows people who have been fired. Um, people will get over it. So it's not obsessing about it for too long. Uh, Paul O'Mahony said, what size of company in terms of employees or revenue does a leader need to get the integrator in? So again, I think I answered that earlier, but basically I think you want to get the executive assistant in first. And then after the executive assistant, you want to get the integrator or a second in command. Just be careful with job titles. So you can be getting a second in command in, you know, in the 20 to 30 employee ranges really when you're going to be getting your first, um, maybe key second. But if you're already building a management team, you know, as early as 10, 20 employees, you're starting to hire some managers. Those effectively are, are kind of seconding commands in a way. So I think really when you get into the 50 plus employee range, when you've already got a management team and you then have someone managing the management team, that's probably when you're bringing in the true integrator is that 50 plus mark. Um, Clinton Senko said, 
when starting a business, what are the three most crucial roles or positions that you feel need to be filled in order to present the greatest chance of success for the business? Right now, I think it's a great question. The first one is, I think in the early stages, you hire a jack of all trades, master of none. So you're hiring people that can do projects, can get shit done, uh, can be entrepreneurial, can grow, can see, and can problem solve. You're looking for people who can also manage complex projects and manage outsourced people. So I think actually in the earlier stage now, it's about people who can manage freelancers, people who can manage projects, and people who are really good at leveraging technology and managing themselves. So I think it's less of the titles and more of the types of people you're hiring. Paul Faust said, uh, what do you do when you really believe the first in command is making the wrong decision? <clears throat> That's easy, you tell them. Um, you tell them they're making the wrong decision. When you believe the CEO is doing the wrong thing, you tell them. What's, and, and I want everybody in the organization to be able to say that and feel that they can point things out. Um, I think what the CEO is starving for is truth. And when the COO always tells them the truth, they really respect that. The key, though, is to not do that in public. Try to do it privately behind the scenes a little bit. Because if you tell the CEO in public in front of the rest of the team they're doing something wrong, they will often get uh, kind of feeling like they have their back in the corner and they'll come at you. But if you do it privately, they're often quite, quite respective of that and, and very receptive of that as well. Ben Weir from Vancouver, he and I both met at uh, Abundance 360 as well. He said, what are your key principles on scaling a low six-figure company? For me, it's just work like hell and advertise. It's really focusing on the critical few things versus the important many. It's really sitting and working on things that you can kind of launch and get into orbit so that they'll always be working. So it's about optimizing and automating things and really, again, working on those critical few things versus being busy. I think so often entrepreneurs are busy and they're distracted. The other thing is really getting a clear, vivid vision in place. And I covered my concept of vivid vision in my book, Double Double, my second book, Vivid Vision. And I also covered it in The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs. And I think that's um, just a, a really great tool to align people as well in the early stages of growing a company. Jason Gatta said, how do you grow an online business as the market shits the bed? Um, focus on sales and marketing, man. Stop reading social media. You know, when the market shits the bed, I think people so often get panicked. We're dealing with that right now with this whole COVID-19, the coronavirus, and people are all panicked and nervous. And, and, but you're spending so much time being nervous and being panicked instead of being focused on sales and marketing and focused on growth. So I would be saying what everyone else is panicked, be out there growing or focused on growing. Uh, Martin Cook said, what guidance can you provide for digital communication to balance being assertive and not offending or upsetting, but still keeping the team in line? For me, it's over video. I think the, the reality is when you do written communication, you're often going to be misunderstood or um, perceived in the wrong way. And I think when you do it over uh, video, you have a much, much stronger chance of actually not upsetting people and, and getting the message across. So I really, really have been leveraging video highly for about 15 years. Donnie Starkin said, what are C-level leaders doing consistently to be mindful leaders? I guess one is to remember that God gave us two ears and one mouth, and we should, should listen uh, twice as often as we talk. Another one is just to remember that everybody out there is struggling. You know, every single employee that we have, every single person that you encounter day to day is struggling with something in their personal lives, and just being mindful with that is important. And then the last one is not overscheduling yourself. I think C-level leaders really to be truly effective should only book five of their eight hours in a day and leave at least three hours open for interruptions, for growing people, for distractions. But, but I think overscheduling can really pull people out of mindfulness. 
Uh, Lauren McGinnis said, in an economic slowdown, how close to the bone should a company terminate employees to ride out the storm? Well, I actually covered a little bit of this in my book, um, Double Double in Chapter 11, How to Grow When It's Slow. And one of the things I talk about is to focus on growth and sales and marketing instead of first focusing on cutting. So I think it's dangerous for anyone's first reaction to be cuts unless you know that you need to make them or you've been riding too thin. But I would be focusing my people on sales and marketing and trying to grow the business even during an economic slowdown. So then I would only be cutting kind of the overhead positions and trying to keep all the revenue generating positions as much as possible. And going back to those high culture people, almost like a hockey team that can play shorthanded. Randall Hurt Sr. said, how do you overcome and right-size what I deem a lingering culture, the negative residue of a management team that's been replaced by you and your leaders? Great question. For me, it's one by one making the cuts of the cultural cancers or the people that don't fall in line with the new vision. So it's rolling out a vivid vision, getting people excited about the vivid vision, keeping people that are excited about it and getting rid of the people that aren't, and just being ruthless around deciding which people don't fit and making those cuts. Um, Michael Fishman said, is valuation impacted by having a virtual staff? I don't have experience on this, Michael, but I don't think so. I think more and more we're actually recognizing that being virtual is part of being a company in today's age. I mean, after all, it's 2020 and we've got a laptop, we've got a video, we've got Slack, we've got a sauna. Why do we need to walk into an office and waste an hour a day driving 30 minutes each way? when we can be more effective with that 30 minutes, kind of having a life or, or working in the business. So no, I don't think so at all. And I think the proof is really going to come right now when companies that can operate virtually through the storm that we're in will absolutely be able to prove that it doesn't hurt valuation at all. Um, Alex Yastrzemski, I can never pr pronounce Alex's name. <laughs> Alex uh, has a company out of the Midwest in the US, one of the top technology companies to work with called InfoTrust. I used to coach Alex and his, his cousin, Michael. He said, what are the best questions to ask when interviewing a COO candidate? For me, what it is, is asking when they've done what I need them to do. So it's going through the core projects that I have on my plate that they're going to have to be doing over the next 12 months and asking them to tell me when specifically they've already done those in the past and really digging into how they did them, how they grew. I also really want to know how they grow people, but I don't want theory. So I really want exact examples of when they've done the specific things. I think that's more important than what the questions are. And it's more the type of questions. So you're looking to find out their pure experience on everything that you're going to need them to do. Uh, Mitch Tublin said, how do you respond when your top sales closer starts to strongly suggest policy decisions for the company? Yes, some are commission related, but not all of them. I would listen to them. I think a big opportunity is to actually listen to the salespeople, listen to everybody in the organization. Sometimes, again, the leader's job is to listen, not speak. So if God gave us two ears and one mouth, if we just listen twice as often as we speak, there's often nothing wrong with having salespeople give us really good ideas. Um, Ed Ho said, wow, Ed, I haven't uh, seen your name in a little bit. You and I went to high school together. So Ed Ho said, do you want the CEO's job? That's a great question. More often than not, the COOs don't want to be entrepreneurs, especially at least in the entrepreneurial organization. So if I qualify this answer as companies from, let's say, uh, 50 to 500 employees, which is really the COO Alliance members, if a, if a company is 50 to 500 employees, more often than not, the second in command does not want the CEO's job. 
They want to help make the CEO iconic. They want to help build the business. They're often very different personality profiles as well. We've had all of our members do a Colby A profile and the profile of the COOs and the profile of the CEOs are drastically different. So no, often they, they don't want the CEO's job at all. Jill Johnson said, what role um, should COOs play in assessing and working through strategic distribution? I don't know, Jill. I've never really been in and or around companies that work on distribution, so I'm going to have to take a pass on that question. Can't help you with that. And last one is from Gordy Bufton. Uh, Gordy works on our team at the COO Alliance in uh, recruiting and interviewing and bringing on all of our great new members. He's been setting records every month he's been with us. And Gordy's question was, what color are your toenails? Um, funny question. Everybody's going to laugh. But about a year and a half ago, I started painting my toenails just for fun. Uh, so today they are dark blue, Gordy. They're dark navy blue. And um, hell, if you have to see it, I will even show you what color my toenails are because I know you thought I probably wouldn't answer the question, but here you go. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Second in Command podcast. I thought I would do an Ask Me Anything. If you like this, please share it. Please subscribe and please also um, put some comments down. But I would love to see people sharing this episode in uh, on social media, on Facebook, LinkedIn. Please tag me as well and um, love to hear some of your comments around it. Hope it's helpful. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.